Ruth chapter 1. The text for today is uh, from verse 6 uh, to verse 18, what we'll read at the whole chapter. In the days when the judges ruled there, was a, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem, of Judah, went to sojourn in the land of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Marlon and Kilian. They were Ephraphites from the Bethlehem in Judah, and they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, and the name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Marlon and Kilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. For I am too old to have a husband. So I should say I have, if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she, and she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the harvest. Amen. So those that were uh, here a few months ago when I uh, preached uh, before from uh, the first six verses uh, of the, uh, the first chapter of Ruth, 
uh, will remember uh, of this man, uh, his wife, uh, Naomi, and uh, their two sons. And they remember that there was a, a famine in the land at that time. And we surmise that this famine was due to the uh, covenant uh, disobedience of the people of Israel. And because of their sins, God judged this nation as he promised he would and brought famine to the land. And then we uh, surmise that this act of uh, Elimelech to leave uh, the country of Judah and go to Moab was indeed an act of unfaithfulness. For we said, and the word of God says, that if a man or a woman would call out to God... Uh, while a nation is under the judgment of God, then God will hear them. And this man could have been used to call his family back to repentance and even maybe the nation back to repentance. And God would have lifted his hand of judgment upon this city. But dis- uh, disaster struck uh, this family as they went to Moab. We read here in the text that uh, Elimelech died and then so did his sons after marrying two Moabite women. And this left Naomi and Ruth and Orpah all alone. And it's from this point that we will now pick up the text today. So why did Naomi leave? Well, it's unclear exactly what motivated Naomi to leave. Was it in submission to her husband? Maybe she saw that this was a bad move, going to the land of Moab, an act of unfaithfulness to God. But in submission to her husband, she went. Maybe she was in general agreement with her husband that this was the right thing to do, and so she followed him. Or maybe her husband thought better of it and thought, maybe we should stay in the land, call out to God. But Naomi, in fear for herself and her family, cajoled her husband into leaving uh, and going to the land of Moab. We're not sure why why Naomi left, but what we are sure is the faithfulness of God. The scripture reminds us in 2 Timothy 2.13, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So God's faithfulness is not dependent on our situation or our actions. God's faithfulness is dependent upon his nature. And this will bring comfort to us in any situation, for we may end up in a situation, a disastrous situation may be because of our own sin, or the sin of someone else, or just because of providence and circumstances. We can take comfort that God is faithful to his people. So I want us to look today at these three women, and particularly this discussion uh, that we saw uh, take place uh, in the scripture. Uh, And I want to particularly look at the uh, three characteristics of these three women. Uh, The first, I want to look at the wisdom of Naomi. And then I want to look at the idolatry of Orpah, And then finally, the love of Ruth. So point one, let us consider the wisdom of Naomi. Naomi hears in our text that God has again visited his people, that he has brought food back to the land uh, of Judah. And it seems from uh, the Hebrew structure of the word that Naomi made a unilateral decision to return back to Judah. And then the daughters Uh, decided that they would also follow her. And it's not clear how far they had travelled before this discussion took place. And we could probably surmise that there was a a delay in this discussion that Naomi had, for fear that, as a response to the the discussion that they had, the two daughters uh, would leave and Naomi would again be left uh, on her own. 
And in, in order to understand this discourse, we need to understand a particular law that God gave to his people. It's called the law of uh, Leverite marriage. And reading in Deuteronomy 25, 5 to 6, says, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed in the name of the dead brother, that is, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So we see in this text is uh, quite often Naomi's talking about a husband or, or marriage. And the reason is, in, in this day, the, the propagation of uh, a family name was extremely important. And the law states here that, that if uh, a, a man dies without bearing children, that his brother is then to take the woman and bear children for. The first child would be to propagate the name of this man. But we see from the text that both Naomi's sons were dead. There was no one to take on this, this burden, this, this responsibility. And she says that even if I had a, a husband tonight and I gave birth this very night to a son, you'd be still too old by the time he's got to the age to be able to marry you. So Naomi is, is, is saying to these women here, if you commit to me, and you're going to have to give up all hope of marriage and all hope of bearing children, which was an important thing uh, in those days. But wisdom dictated that Naomi had this conversation with her daughters. See, biblical wisdom is not only knowing what is the right thing to do in any given situation, but it's having the moral fortitude and the ability to carry out that which you know you should do. Wisdom and folly are indistinguishable until they are acted out. Proverbs 17, 28 says, Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise, and when he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. And Deuteronomy 4, 6 says, Keep them and do them, for that, will, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of people. So this discourse we see in verse uh, 8 and 9, that Naomi encouraged them to leave for the first time. And then verses 11 to 13, uh, Naomi's asking these questions, these probing questions, and making it clear the cost of their commitment if they would remain with Naomi. And finally, in verse 13, she encourages them to leave once again. This was most definitely a call to commitment by Naomi. And whatever else our evangelism is to the world, whatever else it is, it is a call to a loving commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ and also its associated costs. Jesus in his earthly ministry exemplified this type of evangelism. You see, Jesus wasn't concerned with amassing a great number of followers. Jesus was concerned with having people who followed him with a loving commitment. And Jesus seemed to spend equal amount of time pushing people away as he did calling people to himself. We think of the rich young ruler. In Mark 10, 21, Jesus says these words, and Jesus looking at him, loved him, and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, then come, follow me. Jesus is not teaching a works-based salvation here. Jesus knew the heart of this man. Jesus could see that which was an idol in this man's heart. Jesus could see that which his affections were set upon. 
And Jesus recognized that if this man would follow him, then this, this idol of his, this affection for him, would draw him away from Christ. And Jesus' evangelism looks very different to what uh, a large portion of the church calls Christian evangelism. Both true and false evangelism says to the people, come as you are. But false evangelism would say, come as you are into the presence of God. Come as you are into the congregation of his saints. True, true evangelism says, come as you are. But come to the cross of Jesus Christ. The gospel call is come to the cross and lay down everything that you have, everything that you are, and everything that you will be or desire to be. We understand as Christians that we need to leave our sin and our sinful desires at the cross. We understand that as Christians. But we also equally need to leave all our desires, sinful or not, at the foot of the cross. We leave everything at the cross. We go naked to Christ. And if Christ permits us to pick some desire up that we've had, then we can take up that desire freely and we can run with it. But we have to hold it lightly. You see, when we become Christians, we are no longer belong to ourselves. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, 20 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And when we are on the streets, evangelism, and we're speaking about this great sin of abortion, we hear this uh, this chant, my body, my choice. Well, it's obviously fallacious because the baby's body is not the woman's body, but it's also fallacious in, in another way that may not be obviously apparent. And that is that the woman's body herself is not her body. It belongs to God. God gave her life. He sustains life, and one day he will take that life back. God owns all of his creation. And if this is true for the heathen, then how much more true for us, who are not only owned bodily, but the Lord Jesus Christ laid down his life and paid for us, bought us back with his own blood. How much more is our body not our own? Jesus says these words, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Also he says these words in 14, uh, Luke 14, verse 27. Whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. These are the words of our Saviour. And just a little bit further on in verse 33 he says, For therefore... If any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. These are the words of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not describing here super-Christianity. We can maybe get this idea when we read uh, these scriptures and think, well, those who renounce all, they're, they're the super-Christians. But Jesus is saying here that this is entry-level Christianity. And this is a very serious question that we need to pose to ourselves today. How did we get here? Did we come via the cross of Jesus Christ? And while we're considering that, let us now take up our second point and consider the idolatry of Orpah. 
when Naomi presses these questions to her daughters, initially both Ruth and uh, Orpah show this, this commitment to, to, to Naomi. Uh, Naomi didn't ask her to, uh, them to come with her, but they followed her. And then when Naomi tried to push them away the first time, both of them uh, clung to Naomi. And if there was a witness watching this, standing and watching this discourse, and that witness was told at the beginning of this discourse that one of these women would abandon Ruth, as uh, would abandon Naomi, she would have no idea which one it would be, whether Ruth or Orpah. But eventually Orpah is confronted with her idol. An idol is that which takes our greatest affection. Orpah is, is, is confronted by Naomi as, as she presses these questions. And although her affection for Naomi is unchanged, her affection for her idol takes precedence. And as an idol would kept uh, Orpah away from Naomi, so it is idols that would keep us away from Christ. And there are three lessons that I want to um, speak on uh, regarding um, this, um, this idolatry of Orpah. The first is that idolatry does not preclude great affection for other things. Idolatry does not preclude great affection for other things. There is no doubt that Orpah had great affection for Naomi. Verse 14 says, And then they lifted up their voices and wept, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. These kisses of Orpah are not the kisses of Judas who hated Christ, despised him. Now these were the kisses of a woman who had a great affection for Naomi. Having an idol does not preclude us from having a deep affection for Christ. And while our affections, while Christ and our idols can live together in harmony, then it looks no difference to the outsider. But when they come into conflict, it's the idol that takes the last kiss. And therefore, we need to be very careful not to convince ourselves, because we have a love for Christ, that we do not have a love for an idol. Idolatry does not preclude great affection for other things. Point two. Only one idol is needed to steal our affection from Christ. Orpah had left many things to follow Naomi. She left her family, she left her friends, she left her country, she left her God. All of those things that, that we hold dear, Orpah had quite happily walked away from them to follow Naomi. She had sacrificed many things. It's not some half-hearted commitment that Orpah had made. But there was one affection that was higher than her love and her affection for Naomi. And it matters not whether Christ is second or a hundred and second. He will not share his glory with anyone. Isaiah 42.8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to carve idols. It's a single idol on the throne of the human heart that will cut a man off from, or a woman off from Christ and from salvation. Many people desire salvation greatly, but forsake it for a single idol. Only one idol is needed to steal affection from Christ. And this third point in this second section. Idolatry is not always evident either to others or to ourselves. 
Idolatry is not always evident either to others or to ourselves. Initially, Orpah clung to Naomi. It looked genuine. There was no indication of any insincerity there. There was no indication that, uh, that she would desert. And the question is, if Orpah had been asked, before this discourse took place, if Orpah has been asked, is there anything that would keep you from Naomi? We don't know what she would say. But it is potentially true that she would have said, no, there was nothing that would keep me from Naomi. And so it is, as we see in other places of, of Scripture, we hear of this man, Demas, who Paul writes in the first instance in Philemon uh, chapter, uh, sorry, uh, verse 24. And so do Mark and Aristarchus and Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. This man was a considered fellow worker by the Apostle Paul. He looked genuine. As Paul writes later on in 2 Timothy 4.10, for Demas, in love with this present world, had deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. We see here that Demas' idol had been shown and that he had deserted Paul and the work of Christ, that he may have the world. Scripture explicitly warns us about our own hearts. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? I think this would include the bearer of that heart. How can we understand our own hearts? It is a terrible thing that our our idol would deceive others. That is a terrible thing. But it is a far more terrible thing that having an idol would cause us to be self-deceived. Let's pause for a moment and, and consider this. Self-deception is, is so, uh, so uh, dangerous because we have no idea that we are self-deceived. If we were asked to ask someone, are they self-deceived? They would say no and truly believe that. And the fear is that there will be people up and down this nation who are sitting in church pews who believe that there is no idolatry in their hearts. But because of their love for their idol, they are self-deceived. Separates them from Christ and from salvation. The Lord, speaking through Isaiah, speaks this. And all who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. And at the bottom of that section in verse 20 says, And he feeds on ashes, a deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? He has an idol in his right hand, but he's unable to say, he's unable to see, Is there a lie in my right hand? So this is an important question that we need to ask ourselves, whether we feel that we are self-deceived or not. How can we avoid this deception? If our commitment to Christ and ultimately our salvation is dependent upon it, we need to, we need to know, how can I avoid this deception? What well, we see in our, our text, it was the wisdom of Naomi, the pressing questions of Naomi that revealed Orpah's idol. And so it is the wisdom of God that reveals our idols. 
Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of the Lord is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the divisions of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the hearts. It's the word of God. It's the word of God that is the wisdom of God that reveals to us if there is any idol in our hearts. And if we are not in the word of God, if we are not daily washed in the word, if we are not being probed by the word of God, then we can have no assurance that we are not sat here today self-deceived, thinking we have uh, uh, an affection for Christ, thinking that we are free from idolatry. And yet there will be an an idol in our hearts at any moment waiting to take us from Christ from his salvation. But it's not merely an acquaintance with the truth of this book, but it's a submission to it. James 1.22 tells us, But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. This is not a perfect obedience, for we know we are sinful creatures. This is not what the Bible, well it does demand that, but we, we can't expect to live perfect holy lives. We are sinful creatures, but it is a willingness to submit in every part to the word of God. If there is so much as one verse, one commandment in Holy Scripture that we refuse to give obedience to, then our idol has been discovered. So let's now consider, finally, the love of Ruth. It's in the light of Orpah's idolatry that Ruth's response is emphatic. Verse 6, 16 in our text. But Ruth says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. These words are, are emphatic from Ruth. Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you, says Ruth. To Ruth, it is inconceivable that she would leave Naomi No matter what the sacrifice, no matter what sufferings came Ruth's way, it was inconceivable to her that she would leave the side of Naomi. There is no secret affection in Ruth that would draw her away from following Naomi. Verse 16 and 17 says, But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. The Lord, may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. A total and utter commitment to Naomi in life and in, in death. And if this is love, if this is what love looks like in Ruth, this sacrificial love, how much more is it exemplified in the Lord Jesus Christ? If Ruth can say with her human affections emphatically, there is nothing that conceivably take me away from you, how much more the living God can say to us, his children, those whom he has lavished his love on, how much more can he say to us, it is inconceivable that you will not be with me. It's inconceivable that I will not send my dear son to die in your place. It's inconceivable that I will not be with you and walk with you and take you to the end, 
take you to, to, to death and beyond death, that you will be with me in glory. It is inconceivable that the love of God will not have the, the, uh, the, uh, that which he has set his affection on, which is his dear children. The moment God set his affection upon you to love you, which happened before you were born, before you had done that which was good or evil, the moment God set his affections upon you, it was inconceivable that you would be lost. It would be inconceivable that you will not spend eternity with him in glory, praising and worshipping him for his great love. Nothing can thwart the love of God, not some external factor or some internal weakness of desire. We believe in a, a Calvinistic soteriology uh, in, in this church, it's, uh, in our confessions. And we have uh, one of these points is called irresistible grace. That God's grace will draw in and call all those who, who he has chosen uh, to save. But underpinning this irresistible grace is, is this insuppressible love of God. It's a driving force. There is a Christian heresy called universalism. And crudely speaking, it goes like this. That God's love is so incomparably powerful that it, it cannot lose any that it loves. But it also has a, a, an Arminian understanding that, that God's love is, is given to all people. Uh, uh, the same for every single person is loved by God in the same way. Covenant, this covenant love of God. And so they say, they, they look at this, the, the power of God's love, and they say that God loves everyone. And therefore it's inconceivable that any will be lost. This is their argumentation in universalism. But it's not their misunderstanding of the power of God's love that is their problem. It's that they have this Arminian theology which says that God loves all people equally. And this is why our, our Calvinism, our particular redemption, this theology is so important. It's not about uh, getting um, uh, one up on, on someone else who believes something in or scoring theological points. It's because if we have not got this idea of particular redemption, that God chooses a people to love, then in some way we have to diminish the power of love or else we would have to hold to universalism. universalism. God chose a people. God loved a people. God will save his people. And this love is demonstrated in the work of Christ. Verse 16 and, and verse 17 uh, speaks of uh, these things which demonstrate the, the love of Ruth to, to Naomi. She said, I'll go where you go. I'll lodge where you lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from us. The love of God is demonstrated in Christ Jesus, that we were incapable of going to where he goes, so he came to where we were. He left the glories of heaven to come to us. He lodges where we lodge. In this sin-sick world, Jesus Christ came, subject to the same temptations, trials, and sufferings, and many, things, many other things besides he came to his people, and he was despised and rejected by them. But all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. He was subject to the law of God, the obedience to the law that we could not give. Jesus Christ came 
and obeyed the law on our behalf. He died as we should have died. Christ should not have died. Christ did not sin. The wages of sin is death. That was our place. And yet Christ came and died, bearing sin and receiving the punishment for our sin. And he was buried as we were buried in a grave. But Jesus Christ, three days later, rose from the grave victorious over death and sin. And so ourselves, we need to examine ourselves in light of this. And the question we need to ask ourselves today, is it inconceivable that Christ be not yours today? Will we go wherever Christ goes, wherever Christ leads us, no matter what the cost? Be content to live in whatever state he calls us to. Be committed to his people, the church, to lay down our lives one for another and consider each other's needs above our own. That the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ be our God. That we die to self and sin and that the old man is buried and we live in the power of his resurrection life. These are not just platitudes to sound an amen to. The scripture encourages us in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you have failed to meet the test? Jesus gives us this solemn warning. If anyone comes to me, does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brother and sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And just in closing, there may be some here today that have a weak conscience and scruples and they may be looking at their love for Christ and seeing that their love for Christ is cold and asking themselves this question, am I one of his? But we are not to judge our sincerity by comparing our loves to Christ. We will always come up short if we compare our love to his. We need to compare our love for Christ with our love for other things. We need to compare like with like. We need to compare the love that we have for Christ and the world. And this will give us our answer. I have a weak conscience. And I have scruples and I sometimes ask myself as I see my cold love for the Lord Jesus Christ whether I am one of his. But when I ask myself this question, is it inconceivable that Christ will not be mine? I know that I am his. Or it is inconceivable that Christ will not be mine. Could you say that also? God bless you.